This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 188, Plague. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. It isn't 2020 anymore. Distance has brought some perspective to the COVID-19 issue. Perhaps now we can look at the idea of contagion, put it in a proper context, and learn some lessons that can apply both in sickness and in health. This week we will discuss practical applications from the Bible's medical advice, whether romantic love counts as a deadly disease, the evolution of illness and our treatment of it, and the feeling of knowing you have lost when you pick up your cards. We'll start with what I've been preaching. Leprosy is a term used in the Bible to refer to any number of maladies ranging from mildew to smallpox, some obviously more dangerous than others. That is why Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 has a rather intensive series of procedures that priests were to go through when there was a thought that leprosy might exist. Some forms were more contagious than others. Some were more dangerous than others. Some affected humans, some affected clothes or buildings. Identifying the particular ailment, identifying the danger of it, was obviously central to a determination of what kind of treatment should be pursued. In a worst-case scenario, the one who was afflicted needed to be banned from the community. It's important for us to appreciate, though, that this is not a first-stage response. Just because someone might have the disease doesn't mean they do, doesn't mean that it is an immediate and deadly hazard to anyone they come across. A proper response is necessary. We act in proportion to the danger. There is something to be said, especially when the stakes are high, for overreacting rather than underreacting. Even so, whatever specific approach was appropriate, the most important consideration was to properly identify the malady and to preserve the individual's life and to preserve life in general. And I'd like to take that process and expand it a little bit to other contagious diseases of the soul. Gossip was the first thing I thought of. Proverbs 20, verse 19 reads, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. You cut off the fuel supply and the fire goes out. That seems to be the idea. If you know that a person in your company, in your close fellowship, has a gossip problem, you might rethink how much time you're spending around that person. And certainly you want to rethink what kind of intimacies you're sharing with that person. After all, if they are in the habit of revealing secrets, whose secrets do you think they're going to reveal? Probably the person who's spending quality time with them. Don't let that person be you. What we need to do is determine exactly how dangerous the situation is and respond accordingly. Factiousness works the same way. Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 talk about how we're supposed to reject a factious man after first and second warning. Why do we do that? Because a spirit of division, by its very nature, is going to spread. It's our responsibility to assess the situation, assess the alleged factiousness that's going on, and respond accordingly and quickly before it spreads. And maybe a word or two about flirtation also, which is maybe a little bit different in the eyes of some. 
Everyone will agree that gossip is a bad thing. Everyone may not agree exactly what constitutes gossip. Factiousness the same way. But with flirtation, maybe it's a little bit different. I would like to think that all of my audience is going to agree that fornication is wrong, adultery is wrong. That's easy. But we don't always agree that individual localized steps toward fornication or toward adultery are wrong. And perhaps they're not. Again, it depends on the situation. It depends on the people involved. But we would do ourselves a favor if we could step in immediately when we notice a relationship growing and pointing perhaps in a general direction that may go where we don't want to go, where God doesn't want us to go, and take measures to make sure it doesn't spread. Look at how Solomon puts it in Proverbs chapter 5. Verse number 3, For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. That's that small talk, that cute talk, flirtatious talk, that oftentimes breaks down barriers and allows us to interact with one another in ways that perhaps are not healthy for marriages, for relationships. Verse number eight, in the same context, keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Stay away, steer clear of potentially dangerous situations. Don't let them get to the point where they become dangerous. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Going through verse number 20. Again, the end result here, fornication, adultery, we would agree. We don't want to get to that point. But it begins with not being content with what you already have. If we can self-diagnose, or perhaps maybe a little bit more uncomfortably, have it diagnosed for us by our significant other. And if we're honest with ourselves, we are able to take measures that may seem in the moment to be over the top or unnecessary, but do the job of prohibiting the spread of contagion. In the big picture, when we're able to look at it from a distance, we will be quick to acknowledge it was far better for us to step in and maybe work a little bit too hard and save what was really important than to allow what might appear to be a harmless indulgence that wound up leading to something much, much bigger. This is what I've been reading. Well, I finally got around to reading Love in the Time of Cholera by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Everybody else seems to have read it. I've known of this book since I watched the movie Serendipity with John Cusack and Kate Beckinsale. The book features prominently, although they never really talk about what the book is or what it's about. But it had cholera in the name, and I was planning a plague podcast, so let's give it a shot. The book is set sometime around 1900, a little bit before, stretching to a little bit after, in Colombia, in South America. It centers around a young couple who fall desperately, desperately in love, and she leaves him, winds up marrying somebody else, and he is devastated. And the book tracks this couple for the next 50 years or so. 
He learns different, lesser versions of love on his own. She pursues marriage and family in a way that was nice in its way, but not really satisfying. Certainly not anything akin to the fiery, passionate relationship they had with one another in their teens. And cholera keeps coming up in conversation. People are catching it. People are dying from it, etc. And eventually I came to the conclusion, I think the author's point is, Love is like a disease. Love will destroy you. Love will eat you up from the inside out. It's very much like catching cholera. You get weak. You sweat. You are distracted. You're incapable of working. You're incapable of carrying on regular day-to-day activity. It's terrible. It's horrible. Makes you kind of wonder why you'd want to fall in love in the first place. Surely, they would have been better off if they'd never met one another. And of course, way, way, way down the line when they're senior citizens after their life has kind of fallen into place, etc., they find each other again. And they try to rekindle the relationship again. And they find that passionate, passionate love that supposedly they needed the entire time and were managing somehow to do without. Life after death, you might say. I'm sorry, I know that Gabriel Garcia Marquez is a widely credited author. I know he sold a lot of books. I know Oprah thinks he's great. That's fine. Personally, I don't buy into this at all. The idea that love just kind of strikes when it strikes, without any kind of notice, without any kind of warning, without any kind of planning at all, that love forces you into this kind of miserable existence. It forces you to just wallow and feel sorry for yourself and Accept a lifestyle that cannot possibly be happy or satisfying. I don't get that at all with regard to love. Now, I'll grant you, I have been very blessed with regard to love in my own personal family. I've seen it working in the lives of others, but I really don't think that's it. I don't think it's my personal experience that's speaking. I think it is my respect for what the Bible says about the purpose of life, about our role here with other people. And if you'll pardon the expression, a fair amount of common sense. Why would this possibly be a good existence? Now, spoiler alert, I'm a guy. And this book likely was written to a primarily female audience. I know there is a significant portion of the readership of fiction books, most of whom are women, who absolutely delight in this idea that love is all-consuming and that it is destroying you from the inside out, and that you just cannot possibly allow yourself to settle for anything less than the fullest emotional experience you possibly can have. That your life is going to be ruined, in fact, hardly worth living at all, in the absence of some kind of hope that this love can be part of your life. I look at people like the main characters in this book and think, how could you waste 50 years of your life like this? How could you destroy yourself, make it impossible to have any kind of meaningful, any kind of purposeful existence, just somehow manage to exist until you get the physical, gratifying life that you want? I have no intention of living my life like that, and I don't think you should either. God wants us to live in control of our emotions, not to be controlled by them. I realize that that is an opinion that is not always shared by the people of the world, certainly not by a lot of romance readers. 
That doesn't mean it's not true. The life partner that we are to choose for ourselves is depicted as the woman of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. We touched on Proverbs already in a previous segment. Look at what we read in chapter 9 in verse 1 and following. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, Come, eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This is a very different approach than the foreign woman, the strange woman, who is her counterpart, especially in the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. She appeals through enticement, flattery, fancy clothing. Your life is going to be thrilling. It's going to be fun being with me. The appeal is obvious. But God asks us to dig deeper than that, to find not a fun existence, but a purposeful existence, an existence that brings satisfaction and purpose to our lives here, and especially that prepares us for life after this life is over. That can only be done if we harness the emotions that God put in us and channel them in a productive direction. You can do this, and maybe in the short term, it's not as sexy It's not as exciting. People aren't going to write novels about you. But in the big picture, and hopefully that's what we're all about, you're going to find that your life is not only worth living, but full of joy and meaning and hope. God knows better for you than you know for yourself. Accept his wisdom. Put it to work in your life. You'll be glad you did. This is what I've been hearing. At the time of this recording, my father has COVID-19. He's doing fine. And in fact, by the time you listen to this, he very well may have completely recovered. He's tough. Runs in the family. He got the vaccine, so-called vaccine. Got it a couple of times. And this is the second time he's caught the disease. I had this whole screed planned out in my mind about the evolving nature of disease and the evolving nature of our definition of the term vaccine that we use to combat disease. And I decided, you know what, don't even worry about that. We're not going to go down that road. I'm in favor of vaccines. I think that it is part of our mandate to conquer the world that is around us. I think it is only reasonable for us to take care of the body that God has given to us, whether that means eating responsibly or maintaining our heart health or staying away from sickness. But here's the thing. The world is full of germs. The world is full of viruses. The world is full of all kinds of little creepy crawlies that will cause us to lose our health and maybe even worse. We're not happy about that, and I'm glad that we have people working on that. But I think in our almost worship of science and scientific discovery in the last 100, 200, 300 years, we have somehow convinced ourselves that we're going to live forever, and that the only thing keeping us from living forever is our failure, our current failure, in keeping all of the creepy crawlies away from us. Well, if you read the Bible, you know that is sort of right and sort of wrong. There once was a time when human beings lived without such things. 
exactly how long in terms of years, we're not told. But man and woman lived in the garden without the curse for a while, at least. And then we messed that up. And ever since then, we have been dealing with the difficulties of life. And when we started exercising a certain amount of control over these things in the scientific era that I've been privileged to live in, a funny thing started happening. We conquer one disease and another one comes up. We find a treatment that seems to work with COVID-19. COVID-19 mutates. In fact, it gets to the point where we start expecting that it's going to do this. Nature fighting back is the way that it's oftentimes phrased. I'll be more blunt than that. I think this is the will of God. In fact, I'm quite sure it's the will of God. Not that God wants you to be sick per se, but that God has intended ever since the fall for this life to be full of plagues, full of problems, whether they are medical problems, political problems, military problems, whatever it happens to be. This life is problematical. And these problems do not have solutions. I have to emphasize that point. You may be able to come up with an approach to a particular aspect of a particular problem that is successful, perhaps even universally successful. You don't hear about polio anymore, for instance. But disease is always going to be a thing. God asks us to find treatments more than solutions. It's not so much a matter of finding a world where these problems don't exist. It's about honing our character, honing our work ethic to the point where we can effectively deal with these things, keep them in their place so that they do not distract us from doing the important work of life in this world and especially in spiritual realms. Instead of working on the world, which is hopelessly flawed and will remain such as long as Jesus tarries, instead work on you. Work on your dealings with an imperfect world. Peter gives us a list of things to work on in 2 Peter chapter 1. We call them the Christian graces sometimes. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Do not lack these things. You're short-sighted. You're blind if you think that you can live your life without an effective heaping helping of all of these things. He writes in verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. You practice these things, he says. You exercise good practices, good policies. You take care of you. Not so that the world will get fixed as if you have any control over fixing the world in the first place but rather so that you can survive this world and move to the next world, the eternal kingdom. That's what we're pursuing. If we can avoid stumbling on the way, if we can keep our eyes set on Jesus, then whatever treatments we come up with, that'll be enough because we've turned all the rest of it over to Jesus and Jesus is faithful. This is what I've been playing The Hammonds family loves the friendly local game store. But we also love online game stores where we can order from the comfort of our couch and save 25 to 30%. 
Hal Hammond's famous tightwad meet Hal Hammond's lazy bum. But we don't want to give up on game stores entirely, and so we compromise. We will go to the game stores every once in a while, every couple of months or so, and we try to buy something. Maybe it is something that we have been looking for desperately in the online stores and can't find. Maybe it's something that we are just really eager to play this very night and we don't want to wait three to five business days. More likely, it's something that's cheap. And we're willing to spend $20 on it now rather than spend $15 plus shipping and handling later. These were the circumstances that caused us to purchase Bristol 1350, a game about bubonic plague. The way it works is you are living in England in the Middle Ages, and plague has broken out in your community. There are various apple carts that are carrying people, healthy and sick, out of town, and you want to be on one of these carts that gets you out of the way without exposing you unnecessarily to the disease. And the last person to die essentially wins. And your death is determined by the cards that you are dealt and the cards that you pick up and play. The cards that are in your hand are going to be played one way or the other. And I was caused to remember the expression delta bad hand, which I suppose is a poker term. For the Hammonds family, it's a Bristol 1350 term now. Anyway, we broke the game out and we learned the rules, or at least we thought we did. And I was dealt my initial hand of cards. And I'm looking at these cards. And then I look at the rules again. And then I look at my cards again. And then I look at the rules again. I'm fighting the obvious and inevitable conclusion here. I'm staring at these cards that have been dealt to me, and I am saying to myself, I have already lost the game. Literally. I have not done anything except pick up my cards, and I've already lost. That's a bad hand right there. Now, we found out later that we were playing the game inaccurately, that there is a rule that we did not follow that would have kept this from happening. When I found that out, I said, well, maybe we should play the game the right way. Maybe it'll go better. I received a resounding no from the rest of the family. No, we are not going to do that. This game is awful. We hate it. We're not going to play this anymore. But you know what? Life's just kind of like that. We are dealt a bad hand, thanks to Adam and Eve. And we can spend our lives fussing about how unfortunate it all is, about how sad it is that I was born to parents who were not wealthy or I was born to parents who did not treat me properly or in a bad economic time or I didn't have sufficient air conditioning, whatever our complaint happens to be. I think in America in my lifetime, we've gotten very creative at finding ways that the world is picking on us. That's another topic for another day, I suppose. I would suggest to you that it's better for you to accept life the way it is. Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, Paul gives us some sage advice that I think will do us well in our difficult times. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's not about fixing your life. It's about finding Jesus in your life. And finding Jesus, finding purpose, meaning, satisfaction, where he has placed it. And in so doing, 
as he also famously says in the book of Philippians, finding joy. Do not live your life fussing about the cards that you were dealt. It may be unfortunate. I'm sure on some level it is. You probably got a much worse deal than your neighbor. But let me tell you something. You got a much better deal than your other neighbor. Put yourself in Peter's position. Having breakfast with the Lord by the lake with John and the other disciples. And Jesus warns Peter in so many words that he's going to die for the cause. And Peter's response is to turn to his friend John and say, what about this man? And Jesus tells him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about what other people are doing or not doing. Don't worry about whether you are ahead of them or behind them in life's pecking order. None of that makes any difference. None of us has deserved special treatment from the Lord. Rather, revel in the grace that he has given to us, the opportunity that we have to live lives in his service, and then go out and do that to the best of your ability. Play the cards that God has given you. Play them effectively. Play them with determination, with hope, with purpose, and above all, with faith. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.